Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. This week, thousands more army jobs to go, but a boost for the reserves. Regular army, phenomenal. But the truth is, you know, they're good abroad. They're not particularly good on civil contingency. And Afghan security forces face their biggest test yet. Transition means that the Taliban will be attacking their own countrymen. Of course, the Taliban uh, doesn't like that. BFBS. Headlines. Two British nationals have been arrested in Afghanistan by British forces. Though the MOD has given no further details, it's reported they may have been plotting an attack against British security interests. Meanwhile, the bodies of two soldiers killed in Afghanistan are being repatriated to the UK. 24-year-old Lance Corporal Paul Watkins from the 9th 12th Royal Lancers and Corporal Mark Palin from 1st Battalion The Rifles, who was 32, have been flown back to RAF Lynham in Wiltshire. A Japanese man's been sentenced to life in prison after being found guilty of the murder of British teacher Lindsay Hawker. Tatsuya Ishihashi spent more than two and a half years on the run and had plastic surgery to try to evade capture. New figures suggest more than 16,000 police officers will lose their jobs under spending cuts. In all, the police watchdog says more than 34,000 posts will go across England and Wales. And 120 trucks filled with sand are being delivered to Horse Guards Parade. It's part of a test of the plans to use it for beach volleyball in the London 2012 Olympics. By the end of this decade, Britain's army will be smaller than at any time in the last century. The latest round of cuts was announced this week as ministers also promised a boost in funding for the reserve forces. It's a significant shift in the balance between regulars and reserves, but it also means more uncertainty for thousands of soldiers left wondering if they'll keep their jobs. In a moment, we'll talk to one of the senior figures who's been advising the Defence Secretary, but first this report from James Hurst. The Defence Secretary called his announcements on Monday the next phase of the Defence Review. It was a bit like version 1.1 of the SDSR, some important detail added, but also some important changes less than a year since the review was first published. On the detail, there was a commitment to increase equipment spending by at least 1% a year from 2015, securing new Chinooks and the Warrior upgrade, and decisions on where to base the five multi-role brigades that will be the new core of the Army. Army brigades currently stationed around Catterick and Salisbury will make up three of the five MRBs. The other two MRBs will be based in the east of England, centred on Cottesmore, and in Scotland, centred on Kirk Newton, southwest of Edinburgh. But... With the move to five multi-role brigades, we have concluded that 19 light brigade in Northern Ireland will be disbanded. For the brigade that's based in Scotland, it will include a headquarters at the current site of RAF Lucas and a base at what is currently RAF Kinloss. Where the change comes from is the reserves review. Last October, cuts to reservists were dropped at the last minute and this separate study was launched. Its result will be £150 million a year to better equip and train all three reserve forces over the next decade to make them more capable and deployable. There is, though, arguably a sting in the tail. By 2020... If the Territorial Army develops in the way that we intend, we envisage a total force of around 120,000, broadly in the ratio 70 to 30, regular to reserve. And this is the point where you have to reach for a calculator, because actually that will mean around 36,000 reservists, about the same level as the TA now, but a regular army 
of 84,000. That's about 10,000 more posts to go by 2020, on top of the 7,000 that were cut in the Defence Review. The Defence Secretary said it was conditional on the end of combat operations in Afghanistan. But it didn't convince his critics. It's hard to conclude, Mr Speaker, anything other than this is strategic shrinkage by stealth because today's cut in the army is bigger than the entire current deployment of all UK forces in Afghanistan. The Shadow Defence Secretary Jim Murphy accused Dr Fox of hypocrisy. In opposition, he said, and I quote, in the real world, the only logical conclusion you can come to is that the army is already too small and went on to demand a bigger army for a safer Britain. But the Reserves Review said only around a third of current reservists were well enough trained to be deployable, and the idea is properly training all the others will fill the gap left in a smaller regular army. The announcements made on Monday are long-term. Some of them end uncertainties, others introduce new ones, and the balancing of the MOD's books is still ongoing. There may yet be more change to come. James Hurst reporting. Well, Lieutenant General Sir Graham Lamb was part of the review that recommended these changes, and he's on the line now. Thanks for your time today. Um, these are wide-ranging reforms. Are you convinced the reserve forces are geared up for this enhanced role? Uh, interesting question, Kate. The, um, uh, no, I said we, what we've done is we've set a course for them to, uh, to prove to themselves and to us uh, that they can fulfill these roles that we've outlined. It follows on from the work I did with Richard Williams in the, in the policy exchange work I did before the SDSR. Uh, my view is that we do need to seriously look at the balance between regular and reserve. We do need to figure out where um, our responsibilities in defense, and that is responsibilities that are both uh, those which we need to attend to abroad, which we are very good at, and those which we need to attend to in this very troubled new century at home, which I sense that we have not drawn ourselves, nor alongside the Home Office or the National Security Council, but they are now beginning to look at that, mm. as to where those responsibilities for a natural or an unnatural disaster here in the United Kingdom would mean, and our ability, therefore, to defend our realm, our people, way of life, and our prosperity. You've talked about the reserves concentrating on a civil contingency role. Is that how you see it then? No, again, I think it, 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 it's easy to take bits out of these reports and sort of say, all right, now they're going to be doing homeland security and just civil contingency. Not at all. I think the, you know, the, 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 the terms we used in the report, we talked about domestic resilience, homeland security, and military reintegration the regeneration, the uh, responsibility of the reserve to be able to do what they do and have proven so very well these last decade and in previous times in our history to be able to augment the regular force and therefore in fact fill the void as we go and we'll fi could find ourselves in enduring operations is again part of that responsibility. And if you look at large-scale regeneration, then actually the idea of us continuing to build our future on a continental army, which is not how we were necessarily in previous centuries, I sense would be a false economy. So, so you believe then the reservists and the regular army can learn from each other? Yeah. Oh, I mean, the, the, you know, we, we, we harp on about partnership. You know, we, we'd, we'd, we do it in Afghanistan. We've done it in Iraq. You know, what we see, what we need here is a genuine culture change because I sense that the, 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 the sort of the Cold War... Um, sort of put us into do different places. At the, at the wall coming down, we did not then redefine the roles for the reserve. In many ways, actually, as money then got tight, 
they became a sort of financial regulator. But what we found was, in fact, the two drifting apart. We then found ourselves in Iraq and Afghanistan needing the reserve, which they came in initially in formed units or subunits and the like, and then increasingly and more recently, just as augmentation. So we do need to, we need to bring them together. But that relationship needs to be one that is far more integrated. The whole force concept, which the Ministry of Defense are looking at, uh, which I think people intend to embrace, I sense is exactly the right model for us to be able to build this, um, uh, this new balance. And as the Secretary of State quite rightly said, you know, you know, he talks about as the reserves develop, you know, the intention is. So this is not predestined. The importance of the implementation and governance that looks towards this, which holds everybody to account to what we wrote, which was not about more, less numbers here, more numbers there, change is going to be taken, but saying, you know, for once actually trying to bring some real genuine meaning to the word conditions-based. But the intention of the direction, in my view, and I've signed up to it, is exactly as we laid out in that paper. Well, also with me in the studio is BFBS's defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, it would mean the smallest regular army for a century. Should we be worried about that? Uh, no, I don't think we should be worried about it. I mean, what Why we, not? What we, what we have to do, and if you read what was in the, the pre, what I call the preamble to last year's uh, security, uh, defence and security review, uh, you will see where we think we're going to be, uh, going to be in, say, 2020, what our, what, where we think we're going to punch in, in, in the world. If you read the Foreign Office report uh, for Mr. Haig this week on the sort of uh, operations or the sort of uh, emphasis that we're going to have in the future, you can say, OK, this is what we might be doing. What is important, and certainly, um, certainly as the General is talking about here, and it's extremely important, is to get a few things in perspective. Uh, if you want to increase the numbers of reservists, whether in all three services, are you sure you can get those numbers? It's very difficult to recruit people and retain people in those numbers. That's the first thing. Can we get the numbers? The second thing is, can we use people in a new form because somebody who's, who might join the TA, he does it because he wants to learn to drive an HGV, HGV you see. Um, <laughs> but do you do expertise and extension? I think extension, some might, people might argue with that. Well, as an, ex, an expertise is an extension of the civilian job. If you look, for example, at certain jobs that the regular forces might not do on the scale they need to do, medics are an obvious one. Take the intelligence corps. The intelligence corps is responsible and does, gathers intelligence, but also interrogation, languages. But you might have in the reservists a regular supply of people who are already trained, already got degrees in, in, in the languages that you might use. So it's the selection. It's not, forget the numbers for the moment, is select what you want them to do and what you believe they can keep up to speed during their time as reservists mm. and also their employers quite we'll happy about it. it. Well, yes, and earlier I spoke to another member of the panel advising the Defence Secretary, Conservative MP and former TA officer Julian Brazier, and I asked him to respond to criticism the changes amount to the creation of an army on the cheap. I'm one of those, historically, I'm the son of a regular soldier who has argued time and time again that defence should take a higher priority within the nation's spending. What we were concerned about in the reserves review was that within whatever money is available, reserve forces should play a much larger role in it, not only because they're much cheaper, but also because they rebuild the connection with the nation, uh, a regular army largely confined to a handful of super garrisons is 
in danger of completely losing touch with the civilian world, particularly once Afghanistan finishes. Uh, Lieutenant General Lamb, um, you get what you pay for, don't you? And if we're spending less on the army, it's not going to be as good. Yeah, again, these are great one-liners. Yeah, yeah, that's what you pay for. <laughs> what really matters is we do actually take a, you know, pay attention to what are the emerging threats in this new century. And they're very different than the ones we faced in the last. Therefore, we should adapt accordingly. Secondly, we do have to be conscious of the bottom line because if you turn around and look at, let's say, for instance, let's take the carriers. You know, it's a good example. Now, if you've got a beltload of money, then carriers actually are very attractive. They are actually, in fact, can go places. They can project force. But the idea that a carrier comes in at $4.2 billion is completely misleading. You know, we know that, in fact, equipment costs come over time, over costs, et cetera. So it's going to be nearer 12. You then put joint strike fighter on top. That's another eight or whatever the case may be. You then have to support it with submarines under the water, and you have to put overheads in order to give it capability destroyers and frigates. You're talking about a 40 to 50 billion pound capability. So you have to look at the threats we do, and you have to address, with the money that we've got, because I'm a taxpayer too, that how well we spend our 36 billion. And we don't often spend mm. it that well in the ministry. We've got caught into in spending next year or the year after that or the year after that's programs, and therefore fix this in time and space, of which we now expect are looking into a 38 billion pound uh, on the wrong side of the uh, on the wrong side of the line. All right. Well, so, so so you have to take this into account. But but the idea you're saying, all right, this is just a cheap way of doing it. It's not. You know, I've heard both the speakers here talking about you know what we have in society. If you look at the cyber capabilities the military have now got within the territorials, they're extraordinary. They're exceptional. Right. Why? Because that's what they do in their day job. Lieutenant General Sir Graham Lamb, you made your point very clearly there. Thank you very much for your time today. Well, while the changes are good news for the reserves, for the regular army, it means more cuts, perhaps as many as 11,000 on top of those announced last autumn. MP Patrick Mercer is a former army officer. I asked him whether he agreed with Labour's claim this is strategic change by stealth. I don't think I do. I don't think this is this is stealth. I think this is this is pragmatism. I think that the coalition government see an extraordinarily difficult financial situation that's been left by the last government and are trying to, 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 to find a way out of it and at the same time fight two wars and continue to try and punch above the nation's weight in, in terms of defence. Now, if, 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 if there were, and I appreciate this is, a, this is a naive thing that I'm going to say, but I'll say it anyway. If there were a slate, a clean slate, and you asked me to, to cut 17,000 men out of the army without affecting the combat power, and I'll use that phrase again, the combat power of the army, I could do it. There's any number of people who are wearing uniform whose posts perhaps could be civilianised. On paper at the moment, we've got 102,000 troops inside the army. And I, I appreciate I'm not talking about the Navy and the Air Force just at the moment. But of those 102,000, we can only deploy 9,000 fighting troops at any one time. If you wanted me to save 17,000, I could without affecting the bayonet power of the army. But it doesn't, for some reason, it doesn't seem to work like that when the Ministry of Defence pen pushers get, get busy on the problem. Assuming that the plans as announced do go ahead and we have an army of about 120,000, roughly 70,000, uh, 70% regular army, 30% reservists, what could it actually do and what couldn't it do? Um, it depends entirely, Kate, on how the army designs itself. I am 
terribly frightened by talk that I have heard about reductions in both the Royal Armoured Corps and the infantry in terms of, of, of individuals who will physically bear the brunt of the campaigns in the future. And I'm sorry if I come back to this point again, but when, uh, when Libya finishes... And when Afghanistan, Pakistan draws down, because it ain't ever going to finish in Afghanistan, Pakistan, it will draw down, I think, that we will have another campaign or campaigns which are on the side either before those have finished or just as they do finish, which will require troops and will in particular require infantry soldiers, helicopters and Royal Armour Corps. They just will. Tell me I'm wrong, because every time over the past several hundred years as has happened it's always the same we need our combat power so i wonder if it'll actually happen what would you say to someone considering joining the army today and particularly interested in those areas the combat power as you put it i would say this is an absolutely outstanding career in front of you that if i look at the miserable um historical period that i happened to to to, to coincide with in other words the 30 most most peaceful years of the whole of the British Army, which, hey, that was an accident of history, but I regret it. Now, joining a, a combat unit, you will be faced with huge challenges in terms of operational service, peacetime resilience, good pay, a correct career structure, and something that every red-blooded man or woman should do. Patrick Mercer speaking to me earlier. Sit rep with Still to come this week, Afghan forces take control of Lashkar but are they up to the task? There isn't even an insurgency, it's terrorism. And there are many, many cities around the world that have a terrorist problem. In a busy week for Liam Fox, the Defence Secretary also ended the uncertainty surrounding the futures of several RAF bases. RAF Marham in Norfolk remains, but in Scotland, RAF Lucas lost the battle for survival with RAF Lossiemouth. Lucas will become an army base with two units stationed there by 2017. Our reporter Tim Cooper has been in Scotland this week and reports now on how the news was received. Nine months ago, communities in Scotland were thrown into a period of uncertainty. The Defence Review indicated bases could close or be re-rolled to house army units returning from Germany. A maelstrom of rumours circulated over which base would go. Would it be RAF Lossiemouth, Kinloss or Lucas? Perhaps all three, perhaps none. Finally, the waiting ended on Monday when Defence Secretary Liam Fox outlined that RAF Lossiemouth would stay Air Force, home to the Typhoons, while Lucas would go to the Army, as would Kinloss, whose closure as an RAF centre had already been announced. When we looked at where to base the Army, and that was predominantly you know, um, in the south, it made sense to have Lucas as a headquarters. Um, once we'd made that decision about the Army, the logical place to have Typhoon was there for Lossiemouth. Uh, I think that strategically, uh, in the round it makes sense. I wasn't making a decision for one service. I had to make the decision for the whole of defence. For people near the Fife base at Lucas, it meant their campaign to keep the RAF had failed. When you've been involved in a campaign that's been fought with such passion and such dedication and over a long period, and also with such impeccable logic, it is extreme disappointment that that logic would appear to have been totally disregarded. Elizabeth Ritchie is deputy leader of Fife Council, but although 100 years of flying from Lucas will end, the community, I'm told, will welcome the army. We will be having families, will there just be single people? We need to know from Fife Council's point of view what sort of community infrastructure needs to be put in place so we can welcome these people and make them feel that Fife is a good place to live 
and to work. 150 miles north in Murray, Lossiemouth residents though are celebrating. Even last week, community leaders tell me they'd been convinced that Lossiemouth would lose the RAF and they'd been planning for a massive downturn in trade. Royce Clark is owner of Grampian Furnishers in the centre of this picturesque but economically troubled Scottish town. I was predicting maybe a 50% uh, cutting staff and turnover if the base was to shut. Must be a relief man. Uh, a few more grey hairs than I had nine months ago, certainly, so yeah, very, very relieved. Just yesterday was not so much a celebration, but more just a huge sigh of relief. Murray is a rural area with few skilled jobs, and even the hint of closure had led to some businesses shutting up shop. Callum McPherson of the Murray Task Force had campaigned to keep both bases in the area. If both bases had gone, we'd have lost £158 million in gross wages to the economy. We'd have lost potentially one in five jobs. And things like schools, car dealers, chip shops, newsagents, you name it, everybody has been really badly hit. Elsewhere in Scotland, the military landscape will be radically altered. Royal Marines Condor in Arbroath will become an army base with the Royal Marines redeployed to the southwest of England. And outside Edinburgh, a small gliding centre will become a key army HQ. All in all, there will be more boots on the ground in Scotland than there are right now, but for that to happen, Scottish communities will have to get used to different types and structures of military within their neighbourhoods. Tim Cooper reporting. Well, earlier I spoke to George McIntyre, convener of Murray Council and a leading figure in the campaign to save RAF Lossiemouth. And I began by asking him how the community reacted to the news. Absolutely delighted. Um, the community, as you know, have put up a long, a very long uh, and detailed fight to retain the RAF in Lossiemouth. We didn't get that opportunity when the announcements were made to scrap the Nimrod and we were, we're, we were unable to save uh, Kinloss. So we had on our hands the possibility of a double blow. So we were fighting for our survival. And now you could really say that the future looks pretty bright for Murray because although Kinloss is closing, it will get army personnel and you will be taking on more people at Lossiemouth from the RAF and equipment, of course. Yes, yes, indeed. We look forward, we look forward to the, the, the new jet fighters, the typhoons coming. Both the, the Nimrod at Kinloss and the tornadoes at Lossiemouth have been you know, a regular sight around Murray for, for, for many years. And now for you to win, the community around RF Lucas had to lose. What are your feelings about that? Yeah, our, our, we, we made it quite clear right from the start. Our fight was not with Lucas. Uh, our, our fight was to save our airbase, save the RAF here in Lossiemouth. And yes, I can understand uh, how people's are, feelings are, 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 will be high in Lucas. But equally, that could have been the feeling in Lossiemouth if the decision had gone the other way. Overall, the government says Scotland's defence footprint will increase and that uh, Scotland has won handsomely. It's something, obviously, you would welcome. Uh, uh, absolutely. We, we, we have always said we would, have, we would have very much liked to have retained the RAF lookers as, as well. Uh, so we are delighted that the defence footprint in Scotland is to be increased. George McIntyre from Murray Council. Uh, Christopher Liam Fox says that in total there'll be more than 14,000 personnel based in Scotland, but he also hinted that wouldn't survive a yes vote on Scottish independence. Um, a thinly veiled threat to the SNP, isn't it? Well, I suppose it is. It's a political thing, isn't it? Alex Salmond, the leader of the SNP, still talks about um, independence, but there hasn't been a single in, uh, political poll that suggested that the Scottish people 
would vote for independence. So why and on so earth would he say things like that? Uh, because Salmon that? says it. I mean, because it is part, that is part of the just political one-liners. Well, it's, not even, it's just the political one-liners. Uh, this is a very good deal for Scotland, if you think about that. And when people say they didn't want the Air Force, for example, to go from uh, Lossiemouth, don't forget, it used to be a naval airbase. Afghan security forces are this week facing their biggest test to date after British troops handed them control of the city of Lashkar It's one of seven areas in Afghanistan being handed over by NATO this week. When the process is complete, one quarter of the country's population will be under Afghan security. And NATO Secretary-General Anyas Foraz Musen knows it's a landmark moment. Transition means that uh, the Taliban uh, will be attacking their own countrymen. Uh, in the future because Afghan security forces will do the combat. Of course the Taliban uh, doesn't like that. Well, our reporter Rob Olver is on the line now from Camp Bastion. Uh, Rob, a big moment for British and Afghan forces. What state is Lashkar in as it's handed over? Well, Kate, in uh, 2005, one American commander famously described Lashkar as not the end of the world, but you can see it from here. Six years on, it's quite a different picture, we're told, with bustling markets, new buildings sprouting up. Among them, some quite ostentatious villas, car dealerships opening, and, of course, all the British troops in Afghanistan know the place as Lash Vegas. Having said that, Hellman's capital isn't entirely safe. In the past year, there have been 18 insurgent incidents. Only this week, there was a blast near a police station six kilometres from the city centre and just on the outskirts a rogue policeman poisoned and shot dead seven of his colleagues but by Afghan standards that's actually considered relatively stable and certainly light years ahead of the situation six years ago now Lieutenant Colonel Alistair Aitken is commanding officer of four Scots the Highlanders who've been providing protection around Lashkagar. The city itself is a thriving hub of economy growing governance and security in fact, I'd go so far as to say that within Lashkagar city, there isn't even an insurgency, there's terrorism. And there are many, many cities around the world that have a terrorist problem. And Lashkagar is probably one of those. And Rob, there are still big concerns, though, about levels of corruption within the Afghan police force, aren't there? Yes, well, there certainly continue to be stories of um, drivers forced to pay bribes to pass through police checkpoints and jobs being bought in the Afghan police force. British police trainers accept that there are some rotten apples but claim that the problem is not as widespread as a, a local population long used to corruption might believe. They say there's actually growing confidence in the police with more people reporting problems to them and in Lashkagar, where they've trained up more than 3,000 new officers, they put this down to considerable investment in new police cars and buildings including a new headquarters. More of a, a concern, police trainers say, is the inability of nine out of ten police recruits to read or write. And that, of course, means they can't take statements or read commanders' orders. So if anything is a big worry, it's illiteracy. And according to British mentors I've spoken to, it's exactly the same story in the Afghan army. Now, Major Wes Hughes from the Gurkhas certainly has views. He leads a small mentoring team working with the Afghan police. Corruption is certainly present. Uh, whether we can get a, a realistic assessment of the level of corruption, I'm not convinced we ever will. It's endemic within the culture and um, the West certainly has a view of corruption and, and what we would deem as acceptable. As a community, we are wrestling with the issue of how and at what level of corruption we are willing to accept. So what happens to the British forces who've been based in Lashkar Rob? 
Well, British forces uh, have already been transferring responsibility to their Afghan counterparts for some time. Uh, and it's months since uh, British troops have been seen on the streets of Lashkagar. There had been suggestions that the British would leave Lashkagar pretty quickly, but I'm told that's not going to be the case. Task Force Hellman certainly plans to keep, keep running operations in the province from its headquarters in the city for some time to come. Rob Olver in Hellman, thanks for joining us. Well, as this critical week of security handovers began, Hamid Karzai suffered another blow with a second high-level assassination in just a week. Afghanistan's president has lost two close allies in attacks that raise questions about the true state of the country. Uh, Chris, the timing of these killings coinciding with the security handovers must dent Karzai's ability to hold things together. I think Karzai is in trouble anyway and has been for some time, but the important thing is this is his Randis Kandahar, Kars, is Tan, Kars comes, that's where Karzai comes from. Um, he has run first through his half-brother, uh, the security, the economy, the political nous of that region. So that's bad. It is reflected at the moment in the, uh, Af- in the Afghan uh, parliament. 249 MPs, 200 of them, are now publicly against him. That's the size of the problem, and this hasn't helped. Uh, and Christopher, just before we end the programme today, important to reflect on the passing of a former first sea lord, someone you knew well. Yes, uh, uh, Sir Julian Oswald. Uh, you know, he was actually in the Vanguard, which is the largest battleship that British have ever had, or just after the war. Everything he touched, from Dartmouth to uh, the uh, whole concept of anti-submarine warfare, he was. Uh, he, it, it glowed after he left. Um, he was also very funny. I'll tell you, he, he came to see me once when, when I was in the Navy, and he came to see me once as, uh, in my command. And I'd forgotten that I'd got rid of all the chairs out of my office. So that when I held You're a an meeting, austere man, aren't you? Yeah, well, when I held a meeting, you see, uh, people didn't sort of lounge around, and they, they left rather quickly. And I said, I'm terribly sorry. He said, why did you do it? Where did you get this idea? And I said, you assume, sir, that it wasn't mine? He said, yes, I do assume it's not yours. And I said, well, it's actually the Queen. <laughs> Uh, and the Queen of the Privy Council has guys standing around. He said, I'll remember that, I'll remember that. I think I will too. Christopher, good to see you. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. My thanks to Christopher and all our guests. If you have any views on the topics we've covered or anything else you'd like to think or talk about, uh, get in touch the email address, sitrep at bfbs.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye for now. This is Sit Red on BFBS.